would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, and the sermon notes in your bulletin, I know, will be help to you today, as always. I have, um, this last week, picked up a, a new book to read. Um, I know that's a surprise, but this is a this is the, the newest book from Tim Keller. Some of you uh, know him and, and love to read his stuff. But um, this just came out a couple of, oh my goodness, maybe just in the, the last month or so. It's called Hope in Times of Fear, the Resurrection and Meaning of Easter. So I'm wanting to make that my uh, focus for this coming week, uh, to hear him tell some of his story, of course, uh, he and his wife, uh, having served in New York City for many years as a pastor, uh, have retired and so on. They have an apartment that is right there in the area where, uh, located near the hospitals that in the last year were lit up with all the activity of New York City and a virus and so on. And then last June, he got the diagnosis himself of pancreatic cancer, which, as you know, is not one of the good ones. Not that there are really good ones, but... Pancreatic cancer is one of the, the more difficult ones to survive long. And so watching the flashing red lights and hearing the wail of sirens and then to contemplate his own mortality once again, having been a cancer survivor already, uh, in all of that, uh, he, he writes a book on hope. Isn't that interesting? I so value his perspective, and he, he leads us toward where we're headed today and Good Friday and Easter as he writes in the preface of the book, death, pandemics, injustice, social breakdown, we again desperately need a stone or a rock of hope. And there is no greater hope possible than to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. St. Paul says he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. If you grasp this great fact of history, then even if you find things going dark, this hope becomes a light for you when the lights, when the lights go out. Just an interesting uh, start. I am not far into the book, so um, I will look forward to telling you more about it at some other time. I appreciate one other element that he comments on. Uh, he talks about how often in our culture people see Easter as a, you know, a, a symbol of spring and of new life and, and Easter eggs and bunnies and, and those things that sometimes are, are fun, but they somehow become the reality, like a token of new life. And Christ, some would say, whether he rose from the dead or not, he's a symbol of new life. And he's quick to point out, symbol of new life. What kind of drivel is that? My word's not his. If you're facing pancreatic cancer and a world falling apart, some symbol uh, is meaningless, utterly meaningless. Uh, Either give me a Christ resurrected from the dead or don't give me any symbols. Thank you. Now, this morning, as we head into Holy Week, as we have heard already, uh, I'd like to visit with you two texts. Uh, First, of course, one of the classic tellings of the story of that first Palm Sunday, and I'd like to think with you about some of the background of that event. We'll be in Mark 11, as you have in front of you. And then we'll shift some partway through our morning to 1 Corinthians 15, which we will visit Good Friday evening and next Sunday as well, Uh, a chapter 
on resurrection in general and the resurrection of Christ in particular. And I'd like to think with you uh, about the resurrection of Christ and what that means for yours, resurrection, that is. Uh, Because as we are often reminded, we won't be here forever, indeed. So I would love to pray for us that God would, would meet us in his word and give us what we need to hear from him this morning. So pray with me, please. Our Father, we always approach this kind of a time, church family time, in your word with with great honor and respect for the text and the one who gave it, that is you. As you invite us, call us, command us to assemble with other believers and open the word of God together and allow the spirit of God to use the word of God for our good. So do that, Father, this morning. We need your help. We're really not all that smart of people. And so apart from your intervention and your speaking into our lives and our our hearts, uh, we would be lost indeed. So we count on you uh, to, to help us today to hear and to understand and to love your word and then to respond to it in faith. So help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I would urge you to read the first paragraph I gave you there under the heading Palm Sunday, just a bit of a story of of the work of redemption, and uh, that will be at some point a help to you, I think. But in Mark 11, then, I want to read verses 1 through 10 and uh, hear this telling of the story, and then, as you see on your notes, I want to think through with you six, six elements that lead up to this day. So Mark 11, uh, we read in the Word of God. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter into it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who were before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And that then begins what turned into the last week of the earthly life of Jesus leading up to the cross. Of course, people in the crowd not knowing what was to come that week. Just this amazing day. Now, I've said to you before, uh, we, we, we often picture scriptural moments in our minds. I can play the video in my brain of David killing Goliath and a whole number of other amazing stories. And I have this one, too, pegged in my mind's eye. Uh, I think it's a, a beautiful day. It's sunny outside, quite unlike this. There's no threat of rain. Skies are blue. It's in the low 70s. Gentle wind is blowing. There. That's the backdrop. Uh, and it's wonderful. It's just wonderful. Indeed, I think that part is reflected in the text. 
it's a moment of celebration and joy. I don't know about the weather scenario, but that's what I like, and I'm going to stay right there. I think this is an amazing moment. I call it the calm before the storm, a moment of basking, and yet as we see in in Luke 19, uh, you get a little closer glimpse at the heart of Jesus who, who wept as he headed down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem, knowing what was coming. Uh, unbeknownst to the crowd, of course. So if you look with me at your sermon notes, there are six things I'd like to think about with you. All of these, looking at not so much what happened that day, that's fairly simple, I suppose, in the telling, but I I want to remember with you what led up to this day. Uh, Six bullet points of Old Testament history and theology leading up to this moment when Messiah Jesus is presented to his people and ultimately rejected. So we, we start all the way back when sin entered the world, uh, Genesis 3 telling the story of the fall, and we want to remember that right at the beginning, as sin entered the world, God promised a Savior. Uh, that, that little spark of hope right in humanity's darkest hour, uh, God looking at this world now plunging into darkness and giving a hint of a Savior to come, Genesis 12:3, God's promise to Abraham. These are benchmarks that, uh, is, that I, I want to see riveted in the, in the hearts of everyone who is a part of Sunset Bible Church. If you stick around long enough, you'll hear me repeat certain things. It isn't because there's nothing else to say. It's because I'm thoroughly convinced that a certain amount of repetition sticks things in our minds. And so there are high points that I think it's important that every Christian who wants to understand the Bible get a hold of. Abrahamic covenant is surely one. So Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, especially that, that final verse, verse 3, where, where God promises to Abraham that his descendant, specifically, will be a blessing to the whole world. And Paul exegetes that, of course, in Galatians 4 by saying, in that moment, in the mind and heart of God, he was speaking of Christ, Messiah. You wouldn't necessarily see that in Genesis 12, 3. Paul says, God preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham. Now, the Passover lamb, of course, as you come to the book of Exodus, whose blood covered those gathered in the house by faith. We're looking here at Exodus 12. Uh, good for you to remember. Many times uh, people enjoy a Passover Seder at this time for good reason, telling the story of the Passover lamb whose blood marked the house, covered those who were gathered there by faith. And then that moment, years later, John one twenty nine, when John the Baptist said, Behold, you remember, right? The Lamb of God. There he is, the Lamb of God. In every Jewish person, his mind or her mind would immediately go to Passover. The Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb whose blood covers us. Well, here's the Lamb of God, a greater Lamb. So drawing together all these threads from Old Testament to New. Now, the next little bullet point, there are several things here uh, I, I press together. God promised that one day there'd be a greater prophet than Moses. And, of course, I reference here Deuteronomy. You can look all these up. Uh, at some later time as you head toward your community groups this week. Here's Moses saying, one day God will raise up a greater prophet than me. Well, you might think, well, I'm not sure. Maybe that's Elijah or Elisha. Or who's that guy? We don't know. Well, Peter, of course, then, Acts 3, uh, subsequent to the day of Pentecost, Peter exegetes that and says, yes, in the mind and heart of God, he's pointing ahead to Jesus. He's the prophet, the greater prophet than Moses. 
a greater king than David, Second Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant we're well familiar with here, I think. A greater king, one who would sit on David's throne. And of course, in the text open in front of you, you can see that this is on the minds of people Hundreds of years later, in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The Jewish crowd was anticipating a Messiah Savior who would come and sit on the throne of David. They knew that much of the Old Testament. They were right, of course, on that point. But there was a promise from God of a greater king than David who would sit on his throne. And here they are saying, here he is, Jesus, this Savior, the coming king who will sit on the throne of the father of David, of our father David. A greater bread from heaven is my third little bullet point. That's kind of an odd one, isn't it? If you were here at our biblical counseling weekend last weekend, you saw uh, some elements of this as we referenced this. We looked at the, God's provision of manna in the Old Testament, a daily evidence of grace. And we, we drew the connection that even as God gave daily grace then, so he gives daily grace now to us in our time of need. We saw that as a pattern, uh, reflected, of course, in many places in the Bible, uh, certainly in the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, that prayer that says, give us this day our daily bread, a reference back to manna, God's provision for them in a desert. And so we pray today, give us this day what we need in our desert. Give us our daily bread. And Jesus in John 6, of course, says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died And I'm the bread that came down from heaven. So uh, Christ identifies himself as a greater bread, a life-sustaining being, a greater prophet, a greater king, a greater bread from heaven. And then I love Zechariah 9, and I know today we're in Mark 11, but this getting of the, the, the colt for Jesus to ride upon Conquerors typically entered the cities uh, on a white horse. And here comes Jesus on a colt. Zechariah 9, 9 says, uh, tells about this ahead of time. Behold, your king comes seated on a, on a colt. Uh, they should have known. And I think that's implicit in Luke 19 in the telling of this account there. Jesus says, you should have known. You should have known. It's like a big billboard. Here I am. Writing on a colt. Did you read your Bibles? Zechariah 9 9. Psalm 118, of course. Um, we heard words from that earlier today as we prayed together. Um, I'm going to go there just for a moment. Um, uh, again, little bits of Old Testament theology and, and, and teaching are good for us. Psalm 118 is the sixth of a six chapter set. Uh, Psalms 113 to Psalm 118 form a unit. If you study the, a bit of the history, the, the history of that called the Egyptian Hillel, and it's focusing on God's deliverance from Egypt, Psalm 118 especially was the psalm which some would suggest was likely the one that Jesus and his disciples sang as they left the Last Supper. Uh, we read in the Bible, John. I think it's John's Gospel. It says, "When they had sung a hymn, they went out." Probably Psalm Psalm one eighteen. That would have fit there. These Psalms one thirteen to one eighteen were typically sung at at Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, so so very familiar in the rhythm of Old Testament life. And here then in Psalm one eighteen, how appropriate that this song would be sung. Uh, at, at that time of Jesus being sacrificed, I point out Psalm 118, verse 8, 
small piece of trivia, that's the center verse in the Bible. Did you know that? If you count from both ends, Psalm 118, verse 8. There it is. If you ever play Bible trivia and somebody asks, what's this middle verse in the Bible? You can mark that. There it is. Uh, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Isn't that, a be- Isn't that pretty good? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. I learned that as a kid. Uh, but that's the middle verse in the Bible, Psalm 118, verse 8. And, of course, here to read, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected. This is looking, of course, to Jesus. The stone the builders rejected has become the, the, the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. What is it? This is the day the Lord has made. And we sing that, that little chorus often about every day we get up and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Not a bad thing to sing, but in the text, it's not about that at all. <laughs> it's about this day of redemption. It's about the day of redemption. It's not about every day. Uh, albeit the chorus, you can sing it if you like. I won't ruin it for you. I'm just saying, in the psalm, this is the day. What day is that? It's the day of redemption. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful psalm to sing and to be on the lips of these people as they welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. I head back to Mark 11. Now, my other two bullet points, track with these very carefully, if you would, please. What the crowd didn't know this day, well, many things, but here's, here are a couple of things they didn't know. They didn't know that it was necessary. That's the word that Jesus uses on the Emmaus Road with the disciples in Luke 24. Did you not know that it was necessary that the Christ would suffer and enter into his glory? Luke 24 I think verse 25, didn't you know it was necessary for Christ to die an atoning death? Didn't you know this? No, they were expecting a conquering Savior. They were expecting a Messiah who would come and throw out the Romans and kind of take over the world, and and they didn't understand. It was necessary that Christ would be a sin-bearer for us. Indeed, Jesus explains all that from Moses and the prophets uh, to the confused crowd uh, of two and then the disciples. Wow, he had to do this, then to rise from the dead. And I reference here not only the story in Luke 24, but Acts 2, 23, Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon uh, on the day of Pentecost, where he says that Christ was delivered up according to the plan, the purpose, plan, and foreknowledge of God, crucified by godless men. No, but there was a plan, the foreknowledge of God. God planned this, even the death of his son. Isaiah 53 uh, a text we'll certainly visit uh, Good Friday evening. He was, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, our sin-bearer, and then to rise from the dead, necessary. It was necessary. And then that last bullet point on the next page, they also didn't know that there would be two comings of Messiah Jesus. They saw only one. Christ would come first as a redeemer in what we read in the Gospels, and then ascend to heaven, and then come again as judge and king. Luke 19, verse 11, explains the anticipation of the disciples, as does Acts 1, verses 6 through 11. There, as Jesus was about to ascend to heaven, and they say to him, even then, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right as Jesus is ready to leave, he's now crucified and risen, and they're saying, man, should we take over the world now? Right as he says, see ya. (laughs) And they say, wait a minute. I thought we were going to take over the place. Well, no. 
They didn't understand that there would be two comings of Messiah Jesus. One is a redeemer ascending to heaven, and then another coming that we yet await. They didn't see it. Well, we we hope and pray for that day and say, come, 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 Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Now, with, with that as a backdrop, the story of Palm Sunday, I want to shift uh, I understand moving past what we call the passion of Christ uh, and ahead 20 years or so, uh, chronologically at least, to 1 Corinthians 15 and that next section on your sermon notes because 1 Corinthians 15 is a text I would love to have you read. It's in, in its entirety, though we will not treat all of it in our preaching this week. Um, but 1 Corinthians 15 And I put this section on your notes under the same heading as the sermon title, I think for good reason. That is, Jesus gives us hope in this life and the next, both. Yes, both. So 1 Corinthians 15, then, we're moving, of course, from the gospel accounts, probably Peter telling Mark and him recording that in the gospel. And now we come to to the Apostle Paul, having come to Christ and so on on the road to Damascus. Uh, 1 Corinthians, one of the the earlier books in the New Testament to be written, if not the earliest. But this this telling of the gospel. Now, interesting, if I may, um, to look at this text for a moment. Now, uh, I would like to to focus on verses 12 through 20 for our time this morning, uh, because there's a tightly woven argument that you should be familiar with that deals with the implications of the resurrection of Christ not only for for our faith, but the implications for your future as well. Both of those are implicit in this whole chapter. Resurrection in particular of Jesus and resurrection in general as in ours. Both of these are embedded in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the chapter begins by Paul rehearsing the gospel. And um, many who study this text, I'm looking here at verse 3, are quick to point out for good grammatical reason that it seems likely that Paul is here reflecting the words of an ancient hymn, maybe one of the original hymns of the church. Again, this probably written within 20 years or so of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus very, very early. But even at this point, probably an early hymn uh, that's forecast based on the idea that Paul doesn't always use some of these same words. There's a rhythm and a meter in the original language that, that seems to, to speak to like a poem or a song, perhaps sung by the early church. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to this whole crowd, a substantive crowd culminating with Paul, of course, saying, and then he appeared to me. So I start reading then at verse 12, and you see why Paul cares about this so much and will not tolerate someone saying it's all just, you know, it's just a a nice myth. It's some fable. Paul would have been up in arms and in your face. Oh, don't even go there. Don't mess around with that. No, he's he's, uh, very, very strong in, in this chapter. So he says, starting in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of you, he says, how can some of you say this, that there's no resurrection of the dead? Perhaps you're the dead in general. Uh, You're maybe saying Christ could rise from the dead, but there's no future for you. What are you talking about? He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he, we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. You see where he's going here? And if the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is empty or futile and you are still in your sins. You're as lost as you've ever been. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, have perished. His conclusion then, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then I think he hastens to verse 20. But in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I'll stop right there, and on he goes about resurrection and how it all took place and happens and what it means. But there is a tightly woven argument in 12 through 19 full of ifs. He's trying to paint a picture that says, no, this whole idea of resurrection, no real resurrection from the dead, it matters a lot. In fact, it matters everything to the Christian faith. So the idea that, that, that it's only about the death of Christ not so much his resurrection, he would say, wrong, wrong, wrong. If there's no resurrection, what do you have? A Christ who died for your sins and cannot offer life. Come now, he would say. How can you, how can you believe that? It's interesting that sometimes, in, uh, even in talking about issues of faith, there are parts of faith we camp on because they are truly significant, but sometimes we perhaps speak less, maybe even only at Easter, of things like resurrection and indeed, the Bible makes much of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And of course, his earthly life preceding that, his ascension to heaven, and his soon return, all of these captured in the telling of the gospel. So I, I look with you at four different elements as I have them here on your sermon notes. So clearly in this paragraph and the, the broader chapter, Paul is responding to people who struggle with the idea uh, of future resurrection of the dead. Uh, struggle, struggle, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they just didn't believe it. And I say, shockingly, this appears to come from inside the, the, the church at Corinth. Some, how can some of you? So perhaps uh, this is percolating through the church at Corinth. Now, my next bullet point, in a sense, shockingly, in a sense, not. And here's the not part. Uh, the shockingly part is, come on, you're part of this church. You should, you should, I mean, you should have this settled. But on the other hand, uh, we are, listen, we are, we are always affected by the culture around us, aren't we? In any generation. The, the, church, the church is always affected by the winds that blow through culture. And there were philosophies of plenty in those, those days that, that pointed to the, the, the sinfulness of the body and the good of the soul on a level that goes beyond what you would know to be true. Now, the Bible teaches we are embodied 
spirits, right? Embodied souls. It matters what you do with your body. Good biblical theology of the body, which some are writing these days, by the way, uh, and doing good things with that. There are several I could recommend. A philosophy of the body. Well, we recognize that God created us, as I represent here, a Christian view of the body. God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. Uh, God made us as humans, people in the flesh. Christ came in the flesh. In the beginning, of course, God made us then, as now, male and female, with no hint of embarrassment or confusion on the part of God, at least. But, but, but we understand, of course, that we're still part of this body that we are to take care of. We are stewards of the, this tent, as Paul would call it in 2 Corinthians 5. But there were philosophies in that day that kind of said, you know, for a God to indwell a human body, what scandal! I mean, this is base. This is this is almost despicable that a God would 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 indwell this this mortal flesh. This gave rise that idea of the body being base led to some, even in early church times, to say it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Your body's sinful. Your body just has desires and does stuff. And you can kind of step back and go, huh, look what my body did last Friday night. Wow, wasn't that awful? No, and the Bible would come along and say, your body didn't go do that. You did. Because you live there. So let's not have this separation. But the idea, of course, as it relates to resurrection is, if a if Christ had fled from that body, why would he ever want to go live in it again? Why would you resurrect a body that has died? What a, what a dumb story is that? No. It's foolish enough that God would indwell a physical body, but even more foolish that he would resurrect it and live there again, even in a redeemed body, you understand. So this was a scandal to some. I think that would be the backdrop to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. How can some say there's no resurrection of the dead? Well, they did say that because the body is base and terrible. Why would you resurrect that thing? And no, this would fall or fly in the face, of course, of good biblical theology. Christ was raised from the dead. Uh, in what kind of body was he raised? And of course, Paul will explore that in the the chapter that the rest of this chapter, you should read that. A body that was identifiable as his had the scars of the nails. Uh, clearly, could conquer space and time. He could show up in a room with the doors locked. That would be kind of fun, and have eat a piece of fish. How? What is this body? What is this? Yeah, it's very unique. A resurrection body, a physical, spiritual body, something unique. Well. Um, one day, I think we'll know. I think that's a model for what it'll be like for us. Um, but one day we'll know. Um, so, so now Paul is then pressing on this idea of resurrection. And he says, as I have in my fourth bullet point here and all that follows, the text announces dire consequences for the Christian faith if Christ did not rise from the dead. And I presented several things here in well, I stated them positively. Paul went negatively, meaning he uses the, the if argument, if that's not true, if that's not true, uh, very clear in his presentation. And I presented these same six with, the, with, the, with verse 20 in mind. 
You understand? Do you see what I did there? Um, I hope that I hope that that's clear. He's saying if Christ didn't rise from the dead, here are the consequences. And I'm reading it backward at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And therefore, all in all these ifs are negated. Please tell me that that makes sense. Thank you. Good. I just wasn't sure. Um, but 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 that's kind of what I've what I've done here. So, so to to state these the, the, the logical consequences positively. Uh, he says in verses 12 and 13, my goodness sakes, if Christ has been uh, proclaimed as raised from the dead and he didn't, man, what, what nonsense is this? Why are we preaching? And of course, to say it the other way, he has been raised from the dead. Preaching Christ makes sense. And indeed, it does matter. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching's in vain. Your faith is vain. Well, no, no. Verse 20 says he has been raised from the dead. So, so faith in Christ is a logical response. Your faith isn't in vain. Our preaching isn't in vain. No, because of verse 20, he has been raised. Biblical writers who speak of Christ's resurrection and all of us who follow them. No, rather than being, as he says in verse 15, false witnesses of God, misrepresenting God. No, in fact, speaking truth, telling the truth, because Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. Verses 16 and 17. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Let's all go home. Um, my translation, you're still in your sins. Um, and of course, in light of verse 20, no, your sins have been paid for. Christ has been raised from the dead. Your faith is not futile. You are not still in your sins. Thank God for this. Your sins have been atoned for by the death of Christ and evidence of this by his resurrection from the dead. Verse 18, loved ones who have died in faith are safe with Christ. You see this painting the consequences in verse 18. If it all were, if it all were not true, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And he says, may it never be. No, no. In fact, loved ones who died in faith are safe. Verse 19 Sounds a loud drum. Uh, it's the final nail in the coffin. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. Oh, pity us, people. Pity us. No, if, that, if it were true that there is no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, not just an idea of Easter, but really truly resurrected from the dead. He says, we, have, we, have, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why would we have lived a life where we took, um, we said no to things we ought, uh, we ought to have said no to and that we wanted. Why would we have done that? Why would, we have, why would we have taken one day out of seven and gone to church? You know what else we could have gotten done? No, we have all people most to be pitied. Well, no, verse 20 then, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is the idea of an initial part of the harvest of which there will be much more. That's the idea. The Jewish times, Old Testament times, they celebrated a feast of first fruits. It was a celebration of the, of the harvest that was yet to come. It was like picking that first, that first ripe apple off the tree and pausing to say, thank you, Lord, for the, all the rest that there is to come. So celebrating the first fruits, Christ is risen from the dead, and then say, yes, he is the first of many who will come. Indeed, we who will follow him. Now, I want to 
to think with you for a couple of moments on that section, Responding to God's Word, and the two movements in my title, Christ Gives Hope in This Life and the Next. There, there are two parts to this, and it's right that we would, that we would consider both In what way, may I ask, in what way does Christ give hope in this life? These are things I hope you'll explore in your community groups if you're part of one. In what way does Christ give hope in this life? In what way does Christ give hope for the next? But but think about both, if you will. And I would suggest a couple of things to, to get the conversation started. One of those thinking about this life, is the reminder that because Christ has been raised from the dead, because Christ is alive, that the pain and the difficulties and the mysteries and the sufferings and all the things that we could list that are difficult in this life, they all have meaning. They are not random. I, I, I think this is significant. Sometimes people want to know the meaning. They want to know why does this matter. I appreciate the question. But I I would press even at the bigger picture, which in my mind is, but even if you can't explain or understand why it matters, aren't you glad that it does matter? And wouldn't it be devastating, even more than the challenge you face, to think that it didn't matter at all? There is no meaning to this. Your struggles and your difficulty, that's the despair that grips uh, people who, who are away from the family of faith, uh, an atheistic worldview. That's the despair. I'm going to be hungry and sick and struggle, and oh, I know the flowers bloom and so on, but there's more pain than there is joy, and none of it matters. So why stick around for another 75 years of this? And so young people, check out. It's that kind of despair that says it hurts, it hurts tomorrow, <laughs> It will never be better, and it doesn't matter at all. Do you see the despair here? And with the gospel story, there becomes an infusion of hope to this dark scenario. No, there is a God in heaven who created for his own purposes. No, the world is headed someplace according to a story and a plan that God has laid out. And into this dark world, he sent a Savior. My paragraph at the beginning, that this matters a lot. It's moving toward a new heaven and a new earth. And even if we cannot explain today the reasons why certain things take place, let me tell you this. There's a God who oversees it all. And because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, it matters. God sees. He knows. Your life and your difficulties are not meaningless. And that is a consequence of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So so think about this deeply. What in what ways does Christ give hope for this life, even even now? And again I point you back to what I expect to to enjoy in these coming days with Tim Keller. The man who's watching out his window, uh, all the things unfold in the streets of New York, and contemplating his own mortality uh, in a whole new way. Uh, five-year survival rates for pancreatic cancer, if I recall, are 
wow, that's pretty dire. Indeed. Yes. And that's his diagnosis. So Christ does give hope for this life. And then, of course, the next one, the resurrection of Jesus means there's hope for the next life. Yes, there is a next life. There is a next life. Paul describes that 2 Corinthians 5 as real life. Death, this existence, death is swallowed up by life. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. This life is not all there is. The worst thing for a Christian isn't death. Right? I hope we understand that. That great implication of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we think about life. I was reading a little portion ahead here of his... He make, uh, Tim Keller makes a reference to Martin Luther in a time of a pandemic... And he explores the idea of how the extreme, what measures should Christians go through to keep themselves safe or not. And Martin Luther contemplated this in the 1500s. Huh, interesting. Wrote a lengthy paper on this. To what lengths should you go through, go to to save yourself and not to care for others? Interesting, interesting. I know half of you in this room who have Amazon already ordered this little book. Um, it'll be at your house in the next 48 hours, I'm sure. I'd love for us to, to stand and pray together and trust that God will help us to percolate through these things this week as we think about Christ, the one who gives hope in this life and the next. Stand with me, please. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the story of Jesus that we get to rehearse again and again and again and to appreciate and enjoy the faith-building elements of this. We live in a world with much challenge, of course, and that is always true, certainly so today. Father, I pray that the, that, that the, the resurrection of Christ in all of its implications will find its place in our hearts producing joy and hope and removing fear and doubt. Help us, Father, this week as we walk with you in Holy Week. In Jesus' name, amen.